Welcome to Data Science Mixer, a podcast featuring top experts in lively and informative conversations that will change the way you do data science. We've got happy hour fun on the menu today with insights into AI and public policy. Grab your favorite drink and snack and get ready to learn and enjoy. I'm Susan Curry-Civic, the data science journalist for the Alteryx community. And for this episode, I sat down with Alex Engler, Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I am currently a fellow at the Brookings Institution, where I study artificial intelligence and what governance should do about it. I also teach data science for public policy uh, at Georgetown University. Um, I've been teaching classes in that space for a while, and uh, he, him, is totally fine with me. The intersection of data science and public policy is fascinating to me, and my conversation with Alex answered a lot of my top questions. We talked about what's happening in the U.S. and internationally with regulation of AI and ML in the private and public sectors. We explore how future policies can live in harmony with smart and ethical innovation in the field. And Alex describes how and why companies and individual data scientists should pursue meaningful introspection when practicing data science. Let's get started. Sounds great. Well, as you know, one of the things that we do with Top Shelf Data Science is we love to celebrate snacks and drinks. So is there anything in particular that you're having as a snack or a drink right now or that you're looking forward to today? So I haven't had anything yet this morning, but then I'm looking forward to a very good sushi place around the corner for me in in D.C. Oh, awesome. I bet you have really good sushi in D.C. too. You know, shockingly, I really enjoyed the sushi when I lived in Chicago, which being in the oh. you know, middle of the country, you wouldn't expect to be as good as it is, but it actually really stands out. Yeah. Don't know what to tell you. Not sure how they're awesome. doing. Oh, sounds great. I live in rural Oregon, so, you know, our options are uh, limited in wow, <laughs> of that. Very nice. Cool. All right. Well, I am very curious about how you got into data science and how you then kind of segued into policy and civic uses of data science and then into basically this think tank research institute kind of environment. So can you tell us a little bit about how your journey came about? Yeah, of course. I I love this because I am a data scientist and I sort of self-describe that way. And when people hear that, they always, always assume that I was a data scientist first and then I came to policy and governance later. And in fact, the opposite Mm -hmm. is true. I have been interested and focused on policy and governance my entire life from college and there out. In graduate school, I was taking statistical classes at Georgetown and hated them. I was totally disengaged and couldn't care less and had no idea what these had to do with policy or governance. And it wasn't until an internship at the Sunlight Foundation, uh, specifically in a group called Sunlight Labs. Um, Unfortunately, the Sunlight Foundation is no longer uh, around as of recently, but it was an organization focused on improving technology and use it in government as well as using data and new technical systems to open government up to make it more transparent. And when I was there, I was working with really fantastic people who were using, you know, building new data pipelines and then using that data to learn about governance. And so when I saw it in person, I was like, oh, my God, this is this is not what I'm really learning. And it's a fundamental expansion on what policy analysis has done for a long time. Policy analysis mm-hmm. has been a pretty specific subset, what maybe causal inference or experiments, right? How do we how do we learn about what policies work? And a pretty narrow set of data analysis tools. What I saw at Sunlight was a dramatic expansion of that. 
and I got more into data analysis and data visualization and data science over time after that. And that's what I spent the last 10 years doing is applied data science in public policy. What I'm doing now at Brookings is a little different. I'm now more focused on what government should do about the private sector use of AI. Awesome. I love that. It's so interesting to hear you say that you hated statistics at first, because that's certainly something that I think many folks experience when they first get into studying those topics. There's a little bit of resistance and not a lot of enjoyment there at first, but it, it sounds like once you saw some of those applications in an area that you really cared about, that that turned things around for you. Yeah, that's right. Empiricism is a hard sell if you don't know why you're doing it. It's hmm. difficult. It's time consuming. There's math. It feels <laughs> low and you know you have to learn to code and someone was trying to teach me stata and all of these things were not in its favor when i started to see what happens when you build new information when you make accessible and engaging data visualizations when frankly i much enjoyed working in open source programming languages like r and python much more than i did in stata <laughs> all of these things opened up a community and a world of insight that i found really compelling and it's Maybe my first important takeaway was that the realm of data that government was using it was pretty limited, and we're just seeing an expansion past that now. We're just seeing more machine learning, more natural language processing, more image analytics um, appearing in, in governance, and that's good. And um, it shouldn't replace the things that governance has been doing for a long time, but it's an it's important addition, and uh, that's sort of the value that data science brings to that that realm. Yeah, absolutely. So many different potential applications. I love hearing you say too, that it was kind of the the community of people that you got involved with as well that inspired you to, to continue on in the field. Uh, the R community, especially, hmm. it's mm -hmm. hard to overstate how important, how big the difference between Googling things about R and finding, you know, a tutorial that says, here's how you do a thing that matters to you. Mm. instead of Stata, where you have a giant book and there's like an old listserv of really convoluted examples. So I do think open source languages uh, and the community that's built around them, I'm, I'm especially fond of the RStats community, um, opens up empiricism. And, you know, so there's like a democratizing effect of open source languages in that they're free and they're available to everyone. But a fundamentally different reason that they're democratizing is that the community is so welcoming, right? And it engages people. And I think if you look at the R community, there's a reason that it has a ton of not only economists and political scientists, but also genomics and biostats people, right? There are people coming from all sorts of different angles to that language. I think it has a lot to do with with the way in which it's welcomed. People who don't think of themselves first and foremost as data scientists, but think of themselves as passionate about a problem and they need data to learn about that. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is amazing to hear you talk about how all of these things really fed into your interest in data science and helped you find ways that you wanted to apply it and pursue it as a career. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I wanna definitely come back to as a main focus of our conversation is as AI and ML are becoming uh, more widely adopted throughout the public sector, you know, there are also going to be some limitations and some requirements and restrictions uh, placed on those uses and, of course, on private sector uses as well. So I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about some of the regulations that you see being put in place recently or maybe about to happen 
in the U.S. that you think are really significant that are going to have a, a big impact on the trajectory of data science? Sure. It's a huge question, but wow, <laughs> I'm yeah. curious to see what really stands out to you. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And there are two fundamentally different issues here that we want to think about. The first is how government should use AI in data science to improve governance and its services. The administration, the Trump administration, put forward new guidance that sets a timeline for federal agencies to do an audit of all the ways they're currently using AI. That should be done about halfway through 2021, assuming that the Biden administration holds to that timeline, which they don't have to, but they might. And then that audit, the inventory should be public towards the end of the year. And there's already a good report on this out from Stanford and the administrative conference in the U.S. And if you want to look that up, it shows you a bunch of use cases of how government is using AI for fraud detection and for, you know, turning uh, text submissions into codes, right? Also, uh, how to better sort mail. There's all sorts of applications of AI happening now. That inventory is going to be useful because it's then going to be used to help set standards on the use of AI. So we need to know how government is using it before we can start considering in what circumstances we need to set standards. This is difficult work and needs to be taken seriously. And there are some areas that are going to be controversial, but in some ways there's not, this is a fairly clear path forward and and we know how to approach the problem. A separate harder or at least more controversial and maybe less concrete problem is how to govern the use of AI in the private sector. Right. There is also executive guidance from the Trump White House that came out right before the end of the administration that they had started, you know, they'd started and been working on this for about a year and a half. That was Dr. Lynn Parker, the deputy chief technology officer, who, as far as I can tell, is still in the administration and still working on these issues, as well as Michael Kratzios, who's the Trump administration's CTO, who seems to have left that role. And that's, um, as of right now, that's all could possibly change. And this is, you know, probably more relevant to a lot of the private sector data scientists out there, which is how can the government set rules and set standards about the private sector use of AI? And that's going to be a big question, partially led by the U.S. and partially led, it seems, by the European Union. Right. Yeah. And I'd definitely like to come back to the developments in the EU uh, here in a little bit. So you mentioned the the audit and inventory that will be released. What are some of the key things that they're paying attention to as they're putting together that document? Like what's the, the motivating impulse behind it just to gather all of the different uses that are going on? Are they looking for particular things that are of concern or interest? That's a good question. And we don't know that much yet. The document that came out from the Office of Management and Budget essentially says that they want to make AI efforts in the government trustworthy and then lists a series of principles around the ethical use of AI that makes it trustworthy. It mentions working with related government agencies, whether it's the agencies that are implementing this work or whether it's best practices from the National Institutes of standards and technology, or working with the National Science Foundation. And that's all great, but very clearly, we're at the vague ethical principle stage of Mm. what precisely the federal government is going to do and how it uses AI. The 
value of doing the audit, the inventory of use cases of AI, is really to get a conversation started about what types of standards there need to be. And I think you're, you can reasonably expect that work to come back to a centralized office, either some, you know, the Office of Management Budget or also quite likely this new National AI Office, National AI Initiative Office. And then the sort of more tangible work will get started. You know, at the, at the first pass, you really tend to get these very vague AI ethical principles, and it's completely unclear how those are actually going to get implemented. Hmm. Interesting. So this, the National AI Initiative Office, I was noticing as well, there's a part of that, a subcommittee that's going to be dedicated to AI and law enforcement. So I thought that was an interesting move on their part to establish a group with particular attention to that. There's certainly, a, that's certainly the area of artificial intelligence and even data use that's most controversial in the government. It mm-hmm. would be great to set higher standards for the use of algorithmic systems for pre-trial release. So mm-hmm. whether or not you release people before, you know, before their trials, which some localities use algorithmic systems for, is highlighted in the Compass algorithm, right. you know, by ProPublica. Uh, that's mm-hmm. an area where I think these systems are are pretty tricky. It's sure. really hard to tell if they're even capable of helping. So <laughs> a, a good way to think about this is that there is some research that suggests these systems are discriminatory. There's also some research that suggests these systems are less discriminatory than people. And then there's also some research that says, well, when you take the systems and actually apply them in practice, they don't end up helping. And the the combination of the algorithmic recommendations and the judges don't really meaningfully improve decision-making. My takeaway from this is we spent an awful lot of time and money on this problem. And we, we may be better off had we been spending that time and attention on improving services for people being released from prisons. That's that's just me. Sure. But there's no question that we can examine what these localities are doing and maybe set higher standards and make sure that truly egregious practices aren't still in use. And there certainly have been some really egregious practices uh, at state and local law enforcement levels. Right, right. And yet, in the broader context of regulation and AI and of AI and ML, there have been some really interesting moves at the local and state levels to put in restrictions and regulations, stuff that hasn't happened at the federal level yet. So I wonder how you see that progressing. Do you think that there's going to be more action at the lower levels versus federal restrictions, or are we going to largely see you know, some, some guidance coming through these newly established organizations? Yeah, it's a good question. So the Illinois clearly is, had you know, moving forward with prosecuting illegal uses of biometric data through hmm. uh, its law, BIPA. Um, and that's an interesting step forward. And they, they seem to be committed to protecting their citizens from having their data used unlawfully in the state of Illinois, which is interesting. And there's a I think they're justified to say, yeah, listen, this is, you know, you took this data without their permission, you're using it in a service that they didn't uh, consent to be used for, and we're going to say that's a crime. And if you do it and affects our citizens, we're going to find you. 
And I can totally understand why a state would feel compelled to do that. You can imagine an issue in which if a whole bunch of states pass a whole bunch of individualized laws like that, it gets very hard for anyone to build anything that mm. meets all the requirements of you know, 50 states. So there is a potential long-term concern about having everything done at the state level. This is why the European Commission is taking on digital governance and artificial intelligence governance. It's because it makes much more sense to have a single consolidated set of rules. So while there is an advantage, it would be nice to get some federal guidance. You know, I don't think we should expect any federal legislation in the near or immediate future. There's just so much other critical work to be done by the Biden-Harris administration. They need to handle the COVID pandemic and the economic recovery. They are going to be under a lot of pressure for pro-democratic political reforms, all of which to be honest, should take precedence over <laughs> AI legislation, not to say that there are important things we could uh, do. And so I, I don't expect much more than the regulatory actions in the immediate future. If you wanted to be a little more optimistic, I think the people that the Biden administration are bringing in are very technologically savvy, right? They're bringing mm-hmm. really qualified people to improve everything from the data collection codes used for vaccines uh, and uh, and keeping track of coronavirus, all the way to the people who are now running the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which, by the way, was raised to a cabinet level office, which is great, elevating the role that science is going to play in this administration. You know, there's people there. I'd, I'd highlight Alondra Nelson, the deputy lead of that office, who has a long history looking at the sociological effects of tech specifically for her in modern genomics, but that strikes me as a person who's going to pay a lot of attention to AI in the future. So in the short term, I think the Biden administration at a federal level is going to be really focused on the you know myriad of crises immediately facing sure. the country. But the people they're hiring, if they're around for four years or even longer, who knows, they, they could have a really meaningful effect on what federal technology governance looks like. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I think often when we see news coverage of new regulations or, you know, the FTC has done X or the OMB issued this guidance, it's it's kind of from a faceless agency. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't often get a lot of insight into the people behind these mm. things. And I, yeah. I guess from a very sort of naive perspective, I, I would be curious to know more about some of these folks' background and, you know, what their expertise is that they're bringing to this role. I don't, I don't doubt that they know stuff, <laughs> but we don't, we usually just hear about it kind of in that very vague agency attributed sort of way. So it's interesting to hear about, you know, these folks having in some cases, really deep experience. That's really cool. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. One thing that's certainly true about the idea of AI governance is that there is no centralized location. The FTC, as you mentioned, has done some enforcement actions. I I think I approve of the most recent one in which they actually confiscated models that were built right. on illegally collected data. And, and I actually think that's the right thing to do. And But I can understand if you're in the industry, you're not really sure who these people are and where they're coming from. It's in part because there's no long history of or centralized authority on AI governance. So you're not really sure who you're supposed to be even paying attention to. Uh, It doesn't seem like this National AI office is going to be important. You know, I mentioned Alondra Nelson and Lynn Parker. The FTC could feasibly be quite important. And then whatever your 
you know, specific agency is. So if you work in employment algorithms, you might pay attention to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I'm sure you already do. And if you're in finance, you know, you're going to pay attention to CFPB and the SEC, right? So, but that, that said, there, it, it is a little confusing because the these rules haven't, this work hasn't been around for so long that it's obvious who to look to if you're sure. interested, if you want to know what the federal guidance is. Definitely. So, one of the things that I can imagine folks saying as they're listening to us talk about regulations and, and federal offices becoming involved in AI and ML development is, well, wouldn't regulations and restrictions somehow impede the growth of these sure. new technologies? Are we preventing potential uh, positive applications of these tools by putting in regulations and uh, ethical requirements. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, are we are we somehow going to put a damper on the growth of these tools, especially in a very competitive global environment um, for AI and ML? So I'm curious how you would respond to that concern that folks may have about the growth of regulation in this area. It's, it's a reasonable question. I think if you end up with regulations whose net effect is to force companies to hire lawyers and check a bunch of boxes, then no one wins, right? That's like very obviously mm-hmm. to some of us in the policy space, not the goal. The mm-hmm. goal is to improve the floor of quality of the AI systems. So what I mean by that is that there are a number of companies, some number, hard to tell, that are frankly not operating honestly in the AI space. They're making misleading claims about their services, sometimes even going beyond the literal capacity of existing artificial intelligence, You know, basically treating it like it's magic when it's very much not. And they're not only exaggerating what their systems can do, some of those companies are also not putting the work in to go through meaningful introspection, right? To self-evaluate for discrimination or unfair practices, which then if you're a successful company, you can amplify at a pretty large scale. Mm-hmm. And you can think about this in employment, you can think about this in the automated provisioning of health through algorithms. You can also think about this in rideshare services and the, this sort of risk, a, this general idea of risk applies to a lot of sectors. And I don't think the role of government is to magically fix the software industry and somehow make all of these services perfect. And But what it can do is it can enforce a floor of quality and honesty in the market. And I honestly think that if you're a company running, you know, ethical, like if you're taking the ethical application of AI seriously, then you stand to benefit from this. And I, I don't mean AI ethics blog posts. That is the current level of enforcement and it is completely useless. But if you're doing meaningful introspection about your data science applications, if you're saying we're going to build a product that's effective and we're going to meaningfully check to make sure that it's fair and to a reasonable standard of the people who use it, I honestly think you stand to gain from this because it's really hard to tell the difference in the market between some of the less scrupulous systems and some of the more responsible ones. It's time, it's time consuming and it's expensive to put that work into a really good and fair AI product. And it's, frankly, it's easier and cheaper to not do that. And currently, the role of law, especially non-discrimination law, right, should be to make sure that there's sort of a, a minimum standard set for discriminatory practices protect, you know, in protected classes, in protected industries. And we're not seeing that happen, which means that the grifters can spend less money and less time making a worse product in terms of its 
fairness, it might still seem to work reasonably well. And they're going to soak up market share and responsible companies are going to get punished and there's no one enforcing this floor of standard. So at least in a, a local sense, at least in, within the United States, I think there's a, a clear argument for enforcing discrimination laws and maybe unfair and deceptive practices under the FTC. And I, I think a, there is a reasonable way to do that that doesn't dramatically raise the cost of building an AI system and, again, rewards companies that are taking this self-evaluation introspection seriously. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think the issue of, you know, are we doing something that consumers will trust and consumers will feel good about, you know, just that that very basic sense of trustworthiness seems to be a great asset for companies in the first place. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great point, right? There's a bunch of people who were fairly hostile to the use of AI systems. And it's hard to argue that they don't have a point. Some <laughs> AI systems are totally fine, but it's incredibly hard to tell as an individual whether or not you're interacting with one that is fair to you. And, mm-hmm. you know, fair can mean a lot of things. It can mean if you're a woman, it can mean if you're a racial minority, it means if you can have a disability, or even if you have an atypical facial structure or mannerisms, or if your tone of voice is slightly unusual, or your cadence is strange, or if you uh, have a slightly obscure vocabulary. I think people underestimate how being outside the range of expected outcomes can be lead to pretty weird out, you know, effects in an algorithmic system. And you might be the subject of that discrimination without really ever understanding that it's happening to you. And and as a result of this, you know, I think we do see a lot of people see stories about discrimination and problematic algorithmic outcomes and think, why couldn't that be happening to me? And they're broadly right. There's nothing really preventing it from happening to them. That's not to say that everyone is objectively worse off because we're using algorithms. I don't think that's true. But I do think it's fair to say that some people are right to suspect that they are being taken for a ride some of the time. And it's very hard for them to know the difference or uh, between when they're engaging with a responsible system and a not responsible system. And it's very hard for them, you know, to be reassured without some sort of different accountability system mm-hmm. that, you know, these systems are treating them fairly. I think that's a, and I do think that is part of the reason we see a lack of trust in AI systems. That makes a lot of sense. Alex has so many great insights into the issues around algorithmic accountability and trust, and what this means for companies doing work with AI and machine learning. But how should individual data scientists deal with these issues in their day-to-day work? Alex and I will talk more about that after we take a short break. Hey everyone, this is Tyler Heinel. We're product manager at Alteryx working on our open source software. Today I want to talk about Compose, which is an open source Python library for automated data labeling. Using Compose, users can label their time series datasets for supervised learning. Data labeling can be a super tedious process that can require a lot of ad hoc code for each project a data scientist is working on. With Compose, we're trying to make that easy and we remove many of the complexities associated with labeling a dataset. Users will be able to label their data much faster, which will result in quicker experiment time and overall a better machine learning model. This library works great with feature tools, a feature engineering library and a Palomel, an auto modeling library. 
You can access all of these projects by visiting our GitHub page at github.com slash Alteryx. Further, you can see the Compose documentation by visiting compose.alteryx.com. For additional updates and tutorials, follow us on Twitter at AlteryxOSS. Tyler, thanks for that info about another great open source library from Alteryx. And now let's get back to our conversation with Alex Engler about what individual data scientists can do to help ensure their work is trustworthy and fair. So I'd like to go back to a phrase that you mentioned earlier that I thought was really interesting in talking about companies developing algorithms and so forth. You used the phrase meaningful introspection. And I wonder what, what you think that looks like on kind of the everyday level for the typical data scientists, you know, working from home these days. <laughs> How can they engage in that meaningful introspection about their work or encourage that as uh, part of their team's effort or their company's efforts? Do you have any advice for them? <laughs> Super good and important question. One I'm actively trying to learn more yeah. about. There are a growing number of tools in this space, which is especially mm -hmm. great that there are open source libraries and Python and R about how to run bias audits and how to be a little more self-critical about the outcomes of your um, code and data. There's also more publicly available research about what you know, existing issues with models you might be already using, right? If you're, if you're sitting, if you're building a model that sits on a larger, like a existing large language model, it is very much worth reading the research about what potential, you know, biases and word embeddings might exist in that model. Right. And so making sure you're aware of the existing packages that might apply to your tool, right? Whether that's a, for instance, of those bias audits we talked about, or maybe looking into the explainability uh, packages. We've seen a lot of interest in Shapely values recently. Mm -hmm. You know, what available tools are there that help me learn about my AI system and interrogate it a little more thoroughly is a really good first step. I would point people towards like the FACT conference, F-A-C-C-T conference, right? Which, which has mm -hmm. a lot of work coming out on this and also a lot of work in how to rigorously audit an algorithm. So there's like a that technical side of like, is my model sure. doing what I think it's doing? And can I evaluate whether or not it has disparate impact on subgroups? You know, another thing you might consider doing is synthetic data generation. So mm -hmm. you could build a fake set of data based on a circumstance you might be concerned about and run that data through your model and examine what happens. You could also create data that represents a potential problem you're worried about, use that to update your model. If you have a model that's you know, updating automatically and examine whether or not that leads to problematic outcomes, right? And you could imagine doing that as part of an examination for model drift, which your model might be changing over time. So that's a set of criteria we're thinking about. And I would encourage people to look up the recent papers around how to seriously audit their own algorithm. Or, you know, there's recent papers called Closing the AI Accountability Gap, Defining a Framework for Internal Algorithmic Auditing, right? So there's, there's papers on this specific type of work. Separate from that, you also might want to consider the sort of the human data scientist role in this process. That's a little more like choosing what variables you decide to use, right? So there's the core problem of measurement error, which is maybe less considered in the modern private sector use of data science than 
it is in some of the social sciences, right? What does it mean to use employee sales or employee performance reviews as an outcome metric in a prediction? Is that inherently a good and fair measurement of the thing that I'm trying to predict? We're also seeing more evidence that mixed human modeling decision-making can be a problem. And so I mentioned earlier in criminal justice, you could make a model that predicts recidivism really perfectly and fairly. Well, we haven't seen a lot of examples of that, but imagine if that was a real model, you could still imagine worse outcomes if the way a judge interpreted that information was systemically flawed. And so you do also want to have some introspection around the interaction of what model you've built and and how the people who see that information might react. And so there's a there's a ton. And, and this is what I'm saying. This is harder. This is harder than building a bad system, right? <laughs> and I think if you if you want to know what I think the role of government should be, it should be encouraging and then rewarding the companies that are willing to put in this work to make to make their own rigorous systems. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I think one interesting thing that you're mentioning there is I, I think we often see the human in the loop sort of approach suggested as a potential way of addressing algorithmic bias, but you're saying it can actually still be used to reinforce existing human biases. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it's probably hard to talk about, you know, much like much of AI, it's sort of hard to talk about the entire scope of uh, AI in, in one breath. It is true that direct human oversight can note and account for biases and models. That's true. For instance, if I am talking to someone who has a strong accent or a stutter, and I I can recognize that a transcription model that's taking their speech and turning into text is not functioning properly. Right. That is a thing that I as an individual can do and can note and can say, oh, this isn't working. We need to do this by hand. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think and then maybe you could imagine building that into the model code to recognize when that's happening. But there's an example of where a human in the loop could like identify a problem where someone's voice is, is well outside the, the coverage of the training set. And thus the model is doing a very bad job of the transcription. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you're an individual receiving a recommendation from an algorithm and you do not understand the way that algorithm is working and you do not understand the way uh, that it is coming to its decision, you can, you know, it is absolutely not guaranteed to help that person's decision making. They can think the model is accounting for some factors and not others. They can doubt the validity of the model in certain circumstances and not others. And you could lead to that creating just as big of a problem. And that's, that's what we saw in some of these criminal justice algorithms in which the, the judges not understanding quite what they were doing properly led them to make systemically different decisions that I think were, were functionally just as bad as what might happen without an algorithm. Right. So no easy solution, you're saying? <laughs> no, I, I wonder if maybe that like no general solution. And I do think uh, well, there's an important yeah. lesson for governance here, which is that mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to say anything meaningful about AI ever, right? In a, like a broad <laughs> sweeping statement. It's almost completely insane to try. And <laughs> so what you'd hope to see in a governance structure, at least 
and, and what it seems like we're going to try and do in the U.S. is rather than pass legislation that sets a piece of standard for every single uh, bit of artificial intelligence, we're going to try and work within agencies. And even within the federal agencies, they're going to need to work within a sector and within a use case, right? There's a big difference between, we've been, I've been talking about employment recently, there's a big difference between the algorithmic model that analyzes a resume and the algorithmic model that transcribes your speech to text. And there's a big difference between those two things and the model that might predict employee characteristics. And it's not clear to me that you can set any standard or raise the floor on any individual, you know, on all three of those things at the same time, even within one sort of type of, you know, one series of applications that might be require a different thinking. And so I think it's it's going to be tricky to set any really broad standards for AI, but I do think the mm-hmm. a sort of smart and targeted approach where you work within industries, within applications to identify the really important algorithms that are making big decisions about people's lives and helping raise the the floor of quality in those markets. That's something government can do well. Awesome. So a couple of other things that I wanted to be sure to touch on with you in the time that we have left, mm-hmm. one of which <laughs> I think we were in the same webinar on Wednesday, the Stanford webinar about the yeah. Digital Services Act. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was like, oh, I recognize a name here in the Q&A. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in the international trends that we see happening. And you've alluded to this a little bit already, as far as what the European Union is doing, how they're approaching this. And as we know, you know, these are these are international things. We've seen the effects of, for example, GDPR affecting tech companies around the world. So I'm sure whatever the EU does in this regard is going to have wide-ranging effects as well. What do you see happening there? What are some of the key things that you think will have the greatest effects on presumably mostly private sector seems to be their main area of attention, at least large companies? Yeah, that's that's right. So the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen came, well, she didn't go anywhere, I suppose, but she gave a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations recently, and she called for a renewed transatlantic, transatlantic being not such a great term, right? In this case, that really means the US and EU, but probably you know, there's other, many other countries attached to the Atlantic. Anyway, so a US-EU relationship, and specifically mentioned technology governance and artificial intelligence specifically a human-centric approach to AI, which is the phrasing that the European Union seems like. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that that was included prominently is this, under the German-EU Commission presidency, that's Ursula von der Leyen, they're going to release draft legislation on AI governance in the spring, sometime in the next three or four months, I think. Mm-hmm. And that would be legislation that categorizes some AI applications into high risk and then creates some set of criteria around that set of high risk AI applications. And this does touch on the challenge I was I was just talking about, which is what can you really say about all of the myriad ways in which AI can be dangerous from employment to health, to ride-sharing systems, to privacy-releasing aspects, Mm -hmm. to the natural language processing models that structure and organize the web, right? These are really different systems. And can you say anything really effectively about all of them at once? And so what that legislation says uh, about 
that world of these high-risk AI applications is going to be really important. It's possible that they'll move away from this low high-risk framework to more towards what the U.S. is doing, which is this kind of, as I mentioned, within agency approach. It's also possible that they'll set a pretty vague standard for what high-risk models have to do, and then it'll be enforced in some more specific sectoral-focused way. But I do think you're right that it's what they decide to put forward in that legislation is going to be really important. It's also possible that they're going to try and blacklist some things, right? You could imagine saying it is illegal to present an artificial intelligence as though it is a human, which is actually Mm -hmm. a uh, ban that I would support. So I don't think there's any value whatsoever in pretending through either a chatbot or an automated, (laughs) yeah, like like imagine like a deep fake, but it's talking to you as a customer service (laughs) representative, right? Through something like Zoom. You could imagine saying like not disclosing that that's not a person. You could also imagine this happening in virtual reality. We have like a virtual reality avatar, right? And not revealing that's a person. The issue here is that the it's getting harder to tell, right? It's, it's hard to tell the difference between a customer service agent and a chatbot who's following a script and between a uh, chatbot. And it, that might not matter some of the time if you're like buying clothes, right? For, you know, if you're on like a, a website that's like helping fit you for a, a suit or something, but it might matter if you think you're getting financial advice. And so you could see them also ban some technologies, which would be which would be interesting because that's the thing the US is very, very, very reticent to do, even though it's not inherently a bad idea. So a couple things they could put forward, this high low risk AI application standards are gonna be very important. And maybe if they decide to ban things as, as well, that would also have a big impact. So interesting. And I guess something to watch over the next year. Is that kind of the rough timeline at this point for when some of this might actually come forth? Yeah, it looks like 2021 is going to be really interesting. We've got this AI legislation coming from the European Commission. We have also seen the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. The Digital Services Act definitely plays a role if, you know, to the extent that AI policy is a thing, which is like, right, it's, it's not obvious that it, we should even think about it as one thing. But the <laughs> large online platforms use algorithms and the Digital Services Act would try and open up how those are used and, and make some of the data available to independent researchers. And that, if you consider that as part of this conversation, would be enormously impactful in us learning how large platforms like YouTube, like Facebook, like Instagram disseminate information. And yeah, that's, sure. that's that also looks like that discussion in the European Union is going to happen through 2021. Fascinating. It would be so interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that's a, an interesting model for us, too. I think even if we don't know what we want to do, making large data sets a little more publicly accessible, and I don't mean like putting everyone's Facebook data on the internet, I mean giving access mm-hmm. to you know pseudo-anonymous data to trusted researchers who are under a legal obligation not to spread that data around, giving them access so we can learn about the societal impacts. That's something that the European Union is really interested in doing that, that we should probably be giving more consideration here in the US too. That's so interesting. And I, I gosh, we're running out of time. So much to talk about. <laughs> it makes me think of Twitter, just I believe earlier this week, deciding to open up full access to researchers in academia yeah. in particular. So I wonder if that's a bit of a preemptive move in a way in their part, although it's not necessarily the full kind of access that the Digital Services Act seems like it wants to, to request. It's a lot. Twitter's, Twitter should yeah. be commended for this. It's a little easier for them because their site is 
open by default, right? So the sure. vast majority of information is, is public except for private accounts. And so it is relatively straightforward. Facebook put a ton of time and money into a project that tried to thread the needle where they didn't really make individual user data publicly available, but they did make large data sets available for disinformation research. And frankly, they didn't manage to quite create data sets that were valuable enough for researchers. And while there may be, we're going to learn something from it, it doesn't unfortunately seem like it's going to be a model for opening up their data. And they may not be capable or able to do this on their own, in part because they fear the privacy revealing risks, right? If they do this on their own volition, and then a ton of that data leaks, it is a disaster for them as a company, and they could potentially be fined or be sued. In some senses, it's easier for them if a government just comes in and says, hey, you have to make this data available to these researchers. Those researchers are legally liable for keeping it safe. The government is requiring you to do this end of discussion. You know, you could maybe see a better outcome and frankly, have less deliberating on Facebook side about, well, how do we do this and how do we keep ourselves out of legal liability if they don't have a choice? Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Okay. One more quick question. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about something you mentioned in an article you wrote about developing a data scientific investigative capacity in government agencies. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about data literacy and upskilling at Alteryx, you know, getting people to understand data and how data analysis works more deeply. So I I thought this was a really interesting phrase, and I would love to hear a little bit more about what that means to you. Yeah, sure. So so the important thing to understand is right now we have a system where the oversight and accountability in the technology sector is created largely by like a journalistic outrage (laughs) cycle where journalists discover something that looks really bad, where it may or may not be bad. And then the public gets very mad and the company is forced to respond in some way that could be a meaningful change or it could not be a meaningful change. And then typically nothing else happens. This is the tech outrage cycle. It's not a very effective way to run a society. Now, for the record, journalists and academics are doing an enormous amount of good work, and they are documenting and discovering concerning anecdotes and examples around what might be structural and systemic problems in the technology sector. It's really hard to know the answer to that, though, whether or not that's actually happening, because typically they are limited by their access to information from the outside. There is an enormous information asymmetry in terms of what we know about the technology sector. And this is sort of the idea of a piece I wrote called The Devil is in the Data for Lawfare. Essentially, the idea is that if, if you used to be a researcher or a journalist, you could go to the meatpacking plant and look at what's happening. You could evaluate the products coming out of that meatpacking plant as there's a famous chemist named Harvey Wiley who did this, which led to the founding of the Food and Drug Administration. And he was looking at the what was coming out of these um, meatpacking plants and essentially saying this food and other food American genetics is really toxic. It was much more obvious how you went around and documented the problem, 
Right. The issue that we're seeing now is personalization and the web really obscures this. So if you're an individual person, you can go some see some small part of an algorithm, the part that it showed you, but it's much, much harder to broadly see what's happening to everybody in any sort of representative way. And this problem exists in almost anything you try to study on the web. Sure. Like, like what is happening to people who aren't like me? And what of those things is representative of what's going on broadly? And so despite the fact that I think journalists and academics are doing functionally all that they can, and they're really outperforming in their roles here. It's really hard to tell the difference between when they're right and there is something egregious and terrible happening. And when a company is being unfairly criticized by something that appears true from the outside, but isn't really fundamentally true. And this is the idea, you know, the sort of solution to this is you enable people with meaningful independence and, you know, sort of a societally oriented perspective to get data access and and look at this. In the example we were talking about with the Digital Services Act, that's going to be independent researchers. The European Union wants to open up the big online platforms uh, and give some of that data to independent academic researchers. And then they will say, hey, yes, this is a problem or this isn't a problem. You know, we have a systemic and comprehensive way to evaluate it. And that's really valuable because it helps clear up this, like, what should we be mad about and where should our be our focus be? As well as other things like who should we be fighting for not handling issues sure. like child pornography or like mm-hmm. terrorist content, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I talk about data scientific capacity in the federal government, there's another side of this. So one is like, how can we open up some of this data so we really know what's going on? And then two is what happens if we have a really good reason to suspect that there is a law being broken? Mm-hmm. Right now, it's harder, right? You can't yeah. like go get all the documents in a filing cabinet anymore and then <laughs> read them. You need some new skills, right? It's a little less lawyerly and a little more scientific. Uh, And so to do this, you need agencies that can subpoena data sets. And there's a gray area on when you can do that. You might be able to subpoena models. And there's a gray area on when you can do that. And some of this is being going through the courts a little bit. So you need to be able to go get the data from a company that you suspect of wrongdoing. And then you need to be able to analyze it securely and effectively, right? It's definitely a problem of every time the federal government subpoenas a company, that data is, is, you know, very easy to hack, right? So you need like real cybersecurity systems and effective and safe cloud environments, probably, for the government to analyze the data. And then you need talent. We need to be able to hire data scientists who are interested in this type of investigatory work. And that's what I mean by data scientific capacity, right? Can we get the data through a subpoena? Can we securely hold the data? And then can we analyze it in order to provide some sort of oversight? And it turns out that, you know, these aren't like really, really hard problems to um, solve, but you have to be sort of focused on not very exciting things, right? It's not a, it's not, it's not quite as exciting as like some of the AI things that make news. It's like improving federal hiring processes and the availability of cloud infrastructure to agencies, right? At a, at a, in a sure. secure way. And, and that's probably where a lot of the immediate good can happen. And, and hopefully we're going to see the Biden administration invest some attention in that. And I think that the number of good technologists on their transition team is encouraging in that regard. 
Well, it's so interesting. It's a whole nother career path for our aspiring data scientists out there. Yeah, <laughs> Something for sure. else to think about. For sure. The Office of Personnel Management just approved an, like an unofficial title of data scientist in the federal workforce. And so they just, oh, they, wow. they started didn't hiring. It didn't exist before? It did <laughs> not surprising. exist. It did not <laughs> exist. And this was, this was an issue, right? Because you're like, I'm a data scientist and I don't right. mind taking a pay cut. And the government's like, we want to call you programmer analyst three. And you're like, oh, that's not well. helpful. You know, it, it shouldn't matter as much as it does. But I've had a lot of students who work in data science, who are data scientists. Mm-hmm in public policy. And, and it's slightly frustrating when they are going to get called a a statistical programmer when they know that there is a a lot of market value and value to their future not being called a data scientist. And and they, they know they have the skills too. So it's one step, but it's an important step to, to draw on technical talent. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. It's so interesting and so much yet to happen. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to be sure that we mention, or anything else going on? This field, this idea of how we build meaningful governance around artificial intelligence is is not set in stone. And I think there's a number of reasonable people who want to improve and shape the world in which we use AI in our society. And the people and the companies really interested in finding the right balance on, on how can we ensure that there is a standard set and ethical and responsible practices broadly used and in this field, those are those should are, should be really welcome voices in the conversation, and I, I I hope that people listening to this feel like they know a little bit more about about how to get engaged and potentially how to contribute to this because it's it's going to be important. I think it's if you imagine like I do that the the scope of what algorithms do and the scale at which they are used is going to dramatically increase over the next hundred years. You know, it's really going to the way we govern them and the way society plays a role and the public plays a role in their use is going to be really, really important. And, and this is going to be a big couple of years in setting maybe the foundations of, of what that governance, what that uh, role of the public looks like. And so I really encourage the people who are passionate about this to, to find a way to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, you gave us a great overview of this topic and a lot of really important deep insights too. So we're very grateful for you doing that. And it's been great to talk with you. Sure. I'd just say that I am at Alex C. Engler on Twitter, and I would love anyone interested in uh, this sort of thing to feel encouraged to reach out. I'd be happy to talk uh, more about it. Thanks for listening to our Data Science Mixer chat with Alex Engler. Join us on the Alteryx community for this week's cocktail conversation, where we want to know your thoughts. Alex told us he wasn't super excited about some of the things he had to learn early in his data science studies, at least not until he found ways he could apply what he learned to the issues he cared about and connected with a community of like-minded people. What's kept you going in data science, even when the going was rough? What's inspired you to continue to learn in the face of challenges? Share your thoughts and experiences by leaving a comment directly on the episode page at community.alterix.com podcast, or chime in on social media using the hashtag data science mix and tag Alteryx. Cheers.